us this morning. We're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we come to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 this morning specifically, but we'll begin in verse 14 to kind of get the context of what Jesus is up to uh, here. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture. This is one of those passages where you say, uh, normally I like to think that we answer more questions than we raise in the course of the teaching. I like to be confident of that. I may, maybe it's a false confidence, but uh, this one is, is interesting. It uh, raises questions uh, for people. Verse 14 of chapter 16. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all of these things that Jesus was teaching, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Verse 19. Now, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died. And was buried. And being in torments in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off, not a good sign, and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received all your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And as we acknowledge so often, as we begin to teach it and begin to study it together, Lord, we, we acknowledge all of your thoughts and intents behind it. All of the things that are on your heart that you want to have built into our heart. All of the things, Lord, that you know, that you want to have become a part of our knowledge and our thinking. All the things here. Lord, that are meant to strengthen our inner man and our spirit. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd take this passage and cause it to do, Lord, the work that it not only need, that it needs to do in each one of our lives today. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being a speaking God. Now open your word up to it and bear witness to your word, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we want to look specifically at Jesus' account concerning a certain rich man and another man by the name of Lazarus. But this is one of those passages where it is very, very important to understand the context of what in the world Jesus is talking about here or we will never understand the story that he speaks to the Pharisees. Earlier in this chapter... Jesus was speaking to the disciples, as we saw last week. And disciples are Christians. They were followers of Jesus, like us in, in this room today. And they, um, Jesus spoke to them 
And he commanded them to use their present opportunities to secure their future. In other words, to use their material wealth in this life in such a way so as to assure a rich, abundant, blessed uh, coming together and entrance in, into heaven. The reaction of the Pharisees to Jesus' teaching, and they had kind of interspersed themselves among his disciples, and they were kind of listening to his teaching to find something wrong. But when they, when they listened to Jesus teach the disciples and teach us about the use of money, they laughed at him. They derided him. Uh, literally, their reaction to him was they lifted up their nose to him at his teaching. It was unacceptable to them. It was something to make fun of. It was ridiculous in their mind what it is that, that he had taught his disciples in terms of their attitude and use of money. And the reason that they did this, we're told in verse 14, is because they were lovers of money. Now, Jesus reacts to their scorn and to their rejection of his teaching and his reaction was essentially to expose their hearts for what they really were and what God knew their hearts to be. They, anybody can fool other people, and they were fooling their generation into thinking that they were deeply spiritual men and that they were supremely all about God and that was the, God was the most important person and thing in their life. But Jesus reveals that God knew better than that and the truth about them was different than that, that they were actually supremely in their life, they were lovers of money as he talks about there in verse 15 and uh, not lovers of, of God. In verse 16, Jesus declares that they were guilty, and this is a very important verse to understand in all of this. He declared that they were guilty of rejecting the message of the gospel as it was preached by John the Baptist and was then being preached by Jesus himself that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that every single human being should put their faith in him as their Savior and be born again and follow him. Huge numbers of people were following Jesus at this point in, in his ministry. So many people had put their faith in him as their Savior. Every kind of person was putting their faith in, in Jesus for their, their salvation. And, and here as all of these people are trusting in Christ and they're beginning to follow him, the Pharisees rejected God's offer of salvation through Jesus and they did it without any kind of thought to the eternal consequences of it. We also know in verse 18, and I have no interest in getting involved in a discussion, a teaching on divorce and remarriage at all today. We dealt with it in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and if you want to tear into it, uh, you can pick up a tape at the media center related to that or a CD related to it. But Jesus brings up, and it seems kind of odd as where you hit verse 18 and all of a sudden he's talking about divorce and what in the world is he saying? Basically he's accusing the religious leaders of whenever they took God's word and God's word demanded something difficult of people then they found a way and they, they felt they had the authority to massage the Word of God in such a way to soften its demands and then apply it to people's lives. And so they had watered down God's standard related to divorce and remarriage and He confronted them with that. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them here is that because of their covetousness, because of their unbelief, these Pharisees are in no condition to enter into eternity. And yet they think that they are absolutely, fully, completely, you know, peerlessly prepared to enter into eternity. So Jesus tells them a little story in order to make them realize that their present condition in life, which was one of abundant food, beautiful clothing, riches, they had power, they had uh, rank and all, that all of this favor in their life was not an indication that those blessings came from God. And that there was, there was no guarantee that though they experienced those blessings in this life, that those blessings would then carry over and be their portion in the life to come. Now here's the thinking, and, is a, and this is a predominant thinking in the body of Christ yet today. But the religious leaders of the Jews taught that if a person was 
powerful, if a person was wealthy and had all of these things, that it was an obvious evidence of God's pleasure with them. And so these were the people, these were the men and women that were pleasing God. And so, of course, because he was blessing them with this in this life, it would be their portion in the life to come. Conversely, they believed about people who were ill or had sores or uh, were poor, that this was because they were out of favor with God, God was displeased with them, and that their pitiful kind of portion in this life would also be carried over into the next life. That's how they viewed things. So, in the light of their blessings and riches and all of this, Their eternity is already sewn up in their minds. It's going to be fabulous in in their minds. Now first notice that in the story that Jesus tells, he speaks of the condition of these two men in this life in verses 19 through 21. He speaks of the condition of a certain rich man and of his clothing, we're told, that he was clothed in purple and fine linen. That's to say, he was dressed as good as you could dress. If you wore purple in those days, you were rich, not in the context of this congregation or the common person in the world. You are rich in the context of rich people because the purple dye came from the crushing of a small snail and by crushing this particular small snail, you'd get one or two drops of this purple dye from the snail. So the amount of snails that were required, the work that was required in order to get enough dye to dye an entire garment indicated you had money to throw around. You had money to waste on clothing. So this guy is clothed in purple. He is fabulously wealthy. We're also told here, and Jesus tells us, that he wore fine linen. Now linen, we look at linen and we think of linen as this. Linen were undergarments. So this guy has designer underwear, (laughs) however you want to put it. I mean, he's rich where you can see, he's wearing rich stuff where you can't see. And uh, that's real riches when you can do that kind of thing. For those of you who are old enough uh, to remember, as you think about this guy, think Liberace in terms of his clothing. We're told about his diet also, that he fared sumptuously every day. He ate whatever he wanted every day. His cook made whatever he wanted to have. He ate as much as he wanted every day. He ate as often as he wanted to eat every day. Think cruise, only at home and and with your own cook. So this guy ate as much as he could possibly want want to eat. Wow, that's that's a lot of wealth to be able to be able to do those things. Now the condition of the man by the name of Lazarus, we're told there in verse 20, that he was a beggar. And his body was so emaciated and so diseased that it was marked by just open, ulcerated sores on, on his body. We're told also in verse 20 that he was laid each day at a particular gate to beg, and it was close to this rich man's house. And he is so weakened by his poverty and by his physical condition that he can't even walk to the place that he's going to beg every day. Somebody has to carry him to his place in order for him even to beg in life. This is what life in this fallen world had reduced him to. The gate that he begged at was somewhere near this, where this rich man ate every day. And Lazarus's sole hope every day was that some piece of bread, some crumb, some nourishment would fall from the rich man's table and that he'd be able to get it before the dogs did who constituted his competition for these crumbs off of the rich man's uh, table. Now in those days, they didn't have napkins like we have, cloth napkins if you're someplace fancy, paper napkins and uh, if you're not, um, they didn't have knives and forks and spoons. They ate with their hands for the most part. So you eat a meal with your hands, you're going to get grease and spices and all all over your hands. They don't have any napkins. So what a richer person would do at the end of a meal is he'd reach over and he'd grab a piece of bread and he would simply use it as a napkin. He would wipe the grease and the sauces off of his hands on the bread and then he would throw it over his shoulders to the dogs. That's the piece of bread 
that Lazarus is hoping, hoping one, two, maybe three times a day are going to come his way so that he can have enough to eat that day to do this all over again the next day. His only physical comfort that he has in life is the affection that's lavished on him by this dogs who come and on a daily basis uh, lick the open sores that are on his, his body. Now, based upon the incorrect theology of the Pharisees, they assumed that as Jesus continued this story, that upon death, this rich man, like them, would automatically go into heaven and that Lazarus would automatically go into hell. But they're in for surprise uh, from Jesus. Notice in verse 22 that both Lazarus and the rich man die. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that death is going around. There's a lot of it that happens in human history. Everybody is going to die, short of the rapture. I like the rapture option. I pray for it on a daily basis. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Let's begin it with the rapture right now. So every morning my heart is turned to the rapture option. But if he doesn't return and rapture us into heaven uh, prior to our death, we're going to face death. And death is a, a subject that is a, a fascinating one. <laughs> in, in kind of a morose way, I guess. Um, but is a frustrating subject for certain people too. Think of Solomon, who was King David's son. He looked at death and it really bugged him. I mean, he's fabulously wealthy, very wise, all of these things Solomon was. And, uh, uh, but he looked at death and one of the things that bugged him about death was that everybody died, and everybody died the same way. Uh, whether you were a rich man, whether you were poor, whether you were wise, or whether you were a fool, that death came to every single person. It just didn't seem like it was right. I mean, somehow if you're wise or something, then you ought to have some kind of a break in the face of death and the fool. But he, he said, nope, it doesn't matter how wise we are, how smart we are, how powerful we are, how powerless we are, how poor we are, death comes to all of us. And, and, he, and he put it this way in Ecclesiastes. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. He thought he was wise. And why was I then, then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that is now is, that all, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? He dies the same way as a fool. That really bothered him. Now the role reversal that occurs here, Jesus describes in verses 22 and 23, and that is when he speaks after their death, Verse 22, Lazarus ends up in the section of Hades where Abraham was. Good sign. Because Abraham was the father of faith, the father of the nation of Israel. So he goes from being in the world and his sole comfort in all of the world is to be licked by dogs on a daily basis to now being delivered into Abraham's bosom. And as we see a little further in the passage, that when the rich man calls out to him, he's being held in Abraham's bosom or to his chest uh, at that particular time, being comforted by Abraham himself. Wow, talk about a reversal of fortunes. Now, the rich man, we're told in verse 23, he lands in a place of torment. And I think that here it's very important to discuss a little bit about the afterlife before Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And what happens to people after death, subsequent to his entrance into human history, his death upon the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Before Jesus was born into the world and died on the cross for our sins, nobody could enter into heaven. Not David, not Daniel, not Abraham, not Ezekiel. No one, no sinner, 
could enter into heaven until the sacrifice was made that would allow a sinful man and woman to stand in the perfect holiness of heaven. And, and so that was required. So Hades, when we read in the Bible, we read about hell, we read about Hades, we read about Sheol, it's talking about the same thing. So when you have uh, Hades here, and prior to Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection, a person would go into Hades, and Hades was made up of two compartments. One compartment, quite pleasant. Abraham's there to comfort the men and women of faith into his bosom. All salvation in the Bible has to do with Christ. Old Testament saints were saved by looking in faith ahead to the coming of the promised Messiah, and they evidenced their faith in the coming of Messiah by living a life of obedience to God's Word. In the same way that we are saved today by looking back in faith, upon the Messiah, upon Jesus, and the evidence of our faith in Him being that we live a life of obedience to God's Word. So all salvation is based upon faith. So when a person lived a righteous life and looked to the coming of the Christ for salvation, they went into Abraham's bosom, one compartment. There's another side, the hot side, where those that did not look to the coming of Messiah, no faith in Christ, chose to reject God, reject His Word, reject uh, obeying Him, upon their death, they went into Hades also, but they went into the hot side of the compartment. But both compartments are called Hades, but they're not the same. Two different compartments, one for the righteous and then one for the unrighteous. Jesus, when He died on the cross... He was dead for three days, and then, I mean, his body lay lay dead for three days, and then on the third day he resurrected. You ever wonder what he was doing on those three days? Pinnacle. He was putting (laughs) So what was he doing for the three days? In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told what he was doing. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that during those three days, Jesus went down into Hades, and he preached himself to both compartments. And he declared to both compartments, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures that spoke of the coming of Messiah. He informed them of his three and a half years of ministry, and it was basically a three-day retreat by Jesus on Jesus, and certainly on the Old Testament Scriptures. When Jesus then um, resurrected on the third day, he emptied out the compartment of Abraham's bosom. He took everyone out of it. And when he ascended ultimately into heaven, all of them went into heaven. uh, I think at the point of his resurrection, they went into heaven immediately because now he's paid the price in his blood They could do that. That's why when you read in Matthew's Gospel, um, following Jesus' resurrection, it talks about men of renown that walked for some short period of time in Jerusalem following Jesus' resurrection. He cleared out the one compartment. But the other compartment remains. This man that Jesus is talking about here has been there for 2,000 years. It continues to exist. In fact, the Bible says that hell continues to enlarge itself. It's always on a kind of remodeling, enlargement basis to accommodate the number of people that continue to be determined to to end up there. Here's how uh, Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore he says... When he, that is Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill 
all things. And so when Jesus ascended, he it resurrected from the dead. He, uh, it says, he led the captives from their captivity. He emptied out that particular side of, of Hades, of Abraham's bosom. So that when a Christian dies today, we don't go to Abraham's bosom, we don't go to Hades, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Hades or hell, is, that's what it is. And it's important to realize as we try to understand the Bible that Hades or hell is different than Gehenna. Hades is a waiting place. And as miserable as Hades is, it is simply a place where people are waiting to one day stand before Christ at the white throne judgment of, of Christ and then ultimately share the devil's uh, portion of going into Gehenna, which is an eternal lake of fire. And so there's a difference between the two. All of it is very, very heavy, and no one should want to end up in uh, the hot side of Hades today, and certainly not in, in Gehenna, ultimately for eternity. The fascinating thing is that God, in His Word, does not want a single person to end up in hell, or to end up in Gehenna. doesn't want a single person to end up there. He has done every single thing that he can in his love for us. He's done everything that he can to keep every single human being in this world from ever ending up there short of touching our free will, which he will not touch because our choice makes us responsible for the eternity that we choose for ourselves. Think about it for a moment. Think about the magnitude of God sending His only begotten Son into the world in order to, in its, His own way, block us from ending up eternally separated from Him in judgment. A person has to walk over the crucified body of Christ in order to end up in judgment. Very often a person, and you sometimes you listen to Larry King or some kind of place, and, or even a casual conversation anywhere, and people will sometimes say something like, I, I, I can't believe that a God of love would send people into eternal uh, punishment and judgment. And it's a, it's a good question. It's a question that doesn't, that, that doesn't understand the Bible very well, though. The, the answer is very simple. And the fact of the matter is, God does not send anyone into hell. He doesn't send a single person into hell. He wants every single person to be saved. But what He does do is at the end of our lives, He will confirm the reservations that we make for eternity, he will honor our wishes. We determine, by virtue of our own choices, we determine our destination for eternity. And God simply honors them on the other side of, of this life. Gehenna was never made for man. Jesus taught it himself. It was made for Satan and for the angels that followed him in their rebellion against God. But God looks at mankind and says, if you are determined to follow the devil in his rebellion against me, my kingdom, my law, then Satan is going to end up in Gehenna. That's a done deal. And if you're going to join him deliberately in that rebellion, then you will have his portion also. And so it's a serious thing, but God never intended for us to be there. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this whole story, in, there's a lot of debate that goes on related to it. I'll solve the debate for you today. But there's a debate that goes on and says, well, is this a parable, kind of a made-up story that Jesus kind of come up with in order to illustrate spiritual truth, or is this a true story? I'm absolutely convinced it's a true story. I'm convinced that when he talked about a rich man, they knew exactly the rich man he was talking about. 
When they talk about a man that was laid at this man's gate by the name of Lazarus, covered by sores, licked by dogs, they knew exactly who that man was. And they knew that both of them had just recently died and entered into eternity. And the reason that I believe that is that Jesus does not introduce this as a parable. He does not say, the kingdom of God is like this story I'm going to tell you, as he does with most of the parables. In no parable does Jesus ever name a person by name. He names Lazarus by name. It appears that this is a real, true account that the listeners understood both characters in it. He mentions Lazarus by name, and then out of respect for the rich man and because of his eternal destination, as he reveals in this particular account, he does not name him by name. Jesus is a gentleman in that, that regard. Now, notice the rich man has two requests that he makes uh, of Abraham, beginning in verse 24. The first request that he makes is that Abraham would cause Lazarus to leave his place of being held by Abraham, and he would put his finger in some water, and could he send Lazarus just that his moistened finger could be applied to his tongue in order to cool it. Abraham's response in verses 25 and 26 is interesting. The first thing he does is he rebukes the hypocrisy of the rich man's request. He said, in your former life, when you had everything and Lazarus had nothing, I mean, you never helped Lazarus at all. Now you are requesting Lazarus of him a kindness that you had denied him all of his life. In other words, he's not saying that the man is in hell because of, of you know, his treatment of Lazarus. What he's saying is, you're not deserving of the kindness that you're asking for here. Now, this story would have shocked the Pharisees because it was inconceivable to them that in eternity, such a man as this, who was like them, would ever be rebuked by Abraham. They figured that when they got into the next life, that only praise would await them from, from Abraham. Then Abraham informs him that what you're asking me to do is impossible. Because there is a great gulf between the two compartments of Hades, Abraham's bosom and the hot side. And he said, we cannot, cannot, it is impossible for us to go from this area into your area. And it is equally impossible for someone to come from your side and to enter into our side. In other words, death permanently fixes a person's eternity. One of the reasons that that's important is for anybody that uh, comes from a Roman Catholic background to realize there is no such thing as purgatory. And you're going to have to take Jesus' word for that. Wherever we land one second after death, that establishes our eternal destination forever. There is no movement between compartments following death. The second thing that he does, beginning in verse 28, is he begs Abraham to send someone to his father's house in order to warn his five brothers so that they wouldn't come to this same place of torment. He's convinced that if somebody would, like Lazarus, who everybody knew had died, probably all his five brothers knew that Lazarus had died, where's the guy that used to sit out here and wait for the bread napkin to be thrown to him? If Lazarus should rise from the dead, come back to them, warn them about the consequences of the life that they're living, then certainly he, he feels that his brothers would heed the message, they would repent and put their faith in, in Christ. Because he knew they're living the same kind of life that he, was li- that he lived, and that if they didn't repent, they'd be joining him in that place. I think that it's always impacted me from the first time that I learned it related to this passage, but it's so sobering to realize that if the lost could come back to this world, they would preach the gospel. They would never mock it again. They would never mock Christ. They would never turn down another opportunity to receive Christ into their life. 
If they had but one more opportunity, they would become preachers of the gospel in this world and they would begin with their family. People in Hades, the passage teaches us, have a great, great concern for the lost. But they have lost the ability to do anything about it. Abraham's response, beginning in verse 29, is he informs the rich man that his brothers don't need anyone to rise from the dead to tell them what they need to do to be saved. They had the greatest witnesses of all to testify these things to them. They had Moses and the prophets. In other words, they had the Old Testament scriptures. In verse 30, the man protests that his brothers, they really will repent if only they heard the gospel by someone who had come back from the dead. And then notice Abraham in verse 31. He declares that if a person will not heed the supernatural witness of God's word, then they'll never be persuaded, even if a person is raised from the dead. Now, who's right in this? Lazarus, uh, or, or rather the rich man, or Abraham? The fact of the matter is Abraham. Abraham said, listen, if they won't believe the witness of the Scriptures concerning the coming of Messiah, they won't believe if you send people back to him raised from the dead. You know why we know that Abraham was right? Jesus raised people from the dead all the time in his public ministry. And yet so many people continued to oppose him and reject his gospel. In just a couple of chapters, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to be in a section of Scripture where Jesus raises a different Lazarus, or Lazarus who is the brother of, of Mary and Martha. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And as Lazarus is raised from the dead, you would think that if people would believe the message of someone who's been raised from the dead, I mean, that would do it. But when Lazarus was raised from the dead, these very Pharisees, instead of turning in faith to Christ, they began to plot how they might kill Lazarus because his changed life was such a testimony to the truth and the power of Jesus. If a person is determined not to believe you, they will not believe no matter what miracle you do for them, to say nothing of the greatest resurrection in human history, the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead, testified to in hundreds of millions of lives in the world today, and yet that resurrection and the gospel that that resurrection testifies to is rejected by so many in the world. No, even if someone is raised from the dead, and carries that message. Certain people will not believe. And Abraham directs them to the greater witness for faith. The greater basis for faith. Than even a miracle. A miracle like being raised from the dead. And Abraham declares here twice in this section. That scripture alone is enough to produce a saving faith in Jesus. And that to refuse the witness of Scripture is to refuse the greatest sign of all. And it's true. The beautiful thing about the Old Testament Scriptures, one of the beautiful things, is that it testifies to Christ. Jesus said to religious leaders, He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. The entirety of the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. And God gave in that Old Testament scriptures prophecy after prophecy after prophecy as a description of the Messiah that he would send into the world before he sent him into the world so that when that Savior came into the world we would recognize him by the description that God had given to us and that we would then make him our Messiah and make him our Savior. You think about the prophecies that God gave concerning Jesus as a basis for believing in Him for salvation. God said He would be born of a virgin, just as Jesus was. That Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, just as Jesus was. That the Messiah would be born 
as a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, just as Jesus was. That he would be of the tribe of Judah, just as Jesus was. That he would be divine, just as Jesus was. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, just as Jesus was. That he would be rejected in his first coming, be put to death, and specifically that that death would be by crucifixion, just as Jesus was. Do you realize that if Jesus came into the world today, in his first coming, where in the world could he go and end up crucified as a means of capital punishment? What nation, kindred, tribe, tongue in the whole world uses crucifixion as a means of execution today? He couldn't find a place to die in the fulfillment of the Scriptures. But God knew that the Savior of the world would not come into the world in His first coming in this hour in human history, but at a time in human history where the world was dominated by an empire called the Roman Empire and that their chief means of execution was by crucifixion. Listen, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody's the Messiah. And we could go on for the rest of the morning and the rest of the day talking about the Old Testament prophecies given as a description of Jesus so that when He came we would recognize Him as our Savior and as our Lord. God is very smart. God doesn't want an unreasonable faith from any of us. He wants us to use our noggins, to use our brains, to worship God with our heart, but with our minds also. And He calls upon us to put a faith in His Son, not on the basis supremely of emotions or feelings, as wonderful as that is in its place, but it is a reasonable faith that He calls us to on the basis of the Old Testament Scriptures. And it is so reasonable that from the vantage point of heaven, not to believe is unreasonable. The Apostle Peter wrote of the superiority of the witness of Scriptures as a basis for our faith over all other things, including miracles, including a miracle as great as Someone coming back from the dead and speaking a message to us. In terms of, as a witness, the scriptures to believing in Jesus for salvation. And he wrote this. He said, for we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father glory and honor when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's what Peter's saying. He's speaking to Christians in those days. Speaking to Christians in this day and in this room. He's saying, Do you know why I believe in Jesus as the Messiah and as my Savior? I do not believe in Him as my Savior supremely on the basis of anything or any miracle that I saw Him do in the three and a half years that I walked with Him. I do not base my faith in Him as my Savior on the basis of even being with James and John on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration where we saw Him transfigured into His eternal glory, and we heard the witness of the Father Himself declare, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. He said, I do not base my faith in Him on the basis of anything supernatural of that vein, of any miracle in that vein. He said, I base my faith on something sure than even that upon the thing that can never be moved, and that is the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures, the more sure word of prophecy. And here's how he says it. We have the more sure word of prophecy, sure than any miracle which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Listen, there are times that we hit in our Christian lives, emotionally in our lives, where we sink so low, and God goes with us there, underneath of the everlasting arms. And we have things that come against our minds and warfare and perplexity and all kinds of things that take us into such a place that God knows that even the greatest miracle in the, wor- in the world, a miracle of our choosing that we think, and maybe there might be one or two of us here today, where you have come to God and say, God, I'll believe in you if you do this or you do this, and, and then he doesn't do it, and we think he's doing harm to us as a result. It's not true. There are things we face on this side of heaven as Christians in this life that only a faith based upon the unchanging, immovable Word of God, will anchor our faith through this season and deliver us one day into the glory of heaven. And that's why God has based our faith upon His Scriptures. The lessons of this passage. There is a life after this life. And there are only two destinations. All roads do not lead to the same place, Jesus tells us. The choices that we make in this life determine that destination. And no one should assume that they are in a right standing with God based upon the wealth or the power or the riches that they have in this life. A right standing before God is given to us on the basis of our faith in Christ as our Savior. The passage also teaches us that hell is a terrible place where every single person that is there right now does not want to be there. There are no tough guys in hell. There's no swaggering. There's no boasting. There's no machoism. There's none of that. All there is is regret and the hopes that no one who is yet still alive will follow them into that place. There's no friends, there's no parties, there's no keggers, there's nothing that people write rock songs about. Who are we going to believe about hell or the afterlife? We're going to believe Jesus or a bunch of druggies in a rock band? They believe Jesus, thank you. I'll pray for the druggies in the rock band for their salvation. But I'm not going to get my theology from them. It makes a great song. It's a toe-tapper. It's funny, rebellion in its own sick kind of way. But don't base eternity on it. Jesus is the only one who knows what he's talking about. Because he's been there and he's come back. And nobody else in this world has done that. It's interesting as you look at hell and Jesus, how he pictures it here. It's a place where people continue their identity from this life to the next one. They have a consciousness of everything that's going on. They still think. They still feel. They they can still see. They can still hear. They can still remember their former life. What would every single person in Hades today say to any unsafe person in this room today they would say do whatever you must do to avoid coming to this place and only one thing is required not to come to that place and that is to put my faith And the scripture testified to Savior that God has sent into the world for the forgiveness of our sins. God loves us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his heart for our soul. It's said so often that God values our soul more than we do. Well, we don't say that's so sad. But the sad thing is that hell can value a soul more than we value a soul today. And in order to one day 
at the end of this life, be confident that I will enter into the glory of heaven to continue a personal relationship with God. All that's required is to come to God and say, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect in my life. And you know what? I believe that it's just possible that you are so holy and that heaven is so holy that one sin could disqualify me for it. In fact, that's the kind of heaven I hope for. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your only begotten Son into this world to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that his death upon the cross is a full and satisfying payment for my sin. And I believe that he died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day to testify to the truthfulness of his message. And I turn from my own self-will and wicked ways, it's called repentance, and I turn to you, God, and I put my faith in your Son. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes into their life. They're forgiven. We begin a personal relationship with God that will last through the remainder of this life and then through all of the eternity that is to come. And it's all received for the asking. You don't have to go to Tibet. You don't have to climb the Himalayas. You don't have to climb a series of stairs. You don't have to crawl on your knees to Escalon. You don't have to do anything. Salvation is as close as our mouth. Confessing faith in Christ. God wants to save you today. Wants to forgive you today. Wants you to be in heaven with him forever. He's demonstrated his love for you. In the sending of his son. Beautiful insights into eternity. Strong warning by Jesus in the hopes that the warning will be heeded and the ending for each one of us as a result will be faith and a happy ending for each one. Let's stand together and we'll pray.